a record number of American women are reaching the executive suite, and a significant proportion of women now running major U.S. corporations have children. Yet despite this tremendous progress, working mothers still face numerous challenges at work and home, struggles that the COVID-19 pandemic aggravated. Hey folks, it's Mitch Slater, and as we celebrate Mother's Day this month, what a perfect time to have a conversation about a new book called Power Moms, How Mothers Navigate Work and Life, which is a fantastic case study of working women by my special guest today, Joanne S. Lublin, longtime Pulitzer Prize-winning Wall Street Journal career columnist and recipient of the very prestigious Gerald Loeb Lifetime Achievement Award, which is the highest accolade in business journalism. Joining me this week as a special co-host is a colleague of mine, Carrie Shuffman. She's head of the women's segment at UBS, and I hope you enjoy our lively conversation about Joanne's own experience alongside 86 executive mothers from the first trailblazing generations that would be mine, baby boomers, to their younger counterparts. We also reveal some exciting data from a recent UBS Own Your Worth report, which we will link to. That report shows a financial confidence gap among women who are deferring long-term financial decisions to their spouses, and that despite the tremendous advances women have made in the workplace, in their communities, in politics, etc., that at home, behind closed doors, women do tend to fall into more traditional gender norm roles, particularly around money. We're going to take a deeper dive in this episode about that. So I hope you enjoy our talk about Power Moms. Take some notes. There is some serious wisdom being dropped in this episode. Enjoy. Well, thank you for joining me today on Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater. I'm a Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey. We're along with my partners, Anne and Crystal. We do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial needs. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on personal finance and real-life business issues of the day. So let's jump right in. Well, welcome, Joanne, and thank you so much for taking time to join me and my guest host, Carrie Shuffman, and I for this special episode. Thanks so much for having me. Well, appreciate it. And first of all, I hope you and your family are well and managing your way through this last crazy year. I think that's the most important thing to start every episode with and just kind of check in with everyone. Well, the best thing is that we're fully vaccinated, and so we've started to travel and once again see the distant grandchildren. So that's good. Oh, that's great. That's, I know, what a what a relief. My I have a 94-year-old mom, and she's been so happy lately being able to see her great-grandchildren. One in Hawaii she hasn't seen in a while, but hopefully soon they'll, they'll be coming in to visit. So before diving into this fantastic case study of working women, I want to talk about your wonderful journey and career first. So tell us a little bit about your childhood. Did you always want to be a journalist? Well... From a very young age, I always wanted to be a writer. And in fact, uh, my late mother, who unfortunately passed away a year ago, used to tell me that before I knew how to write, I would dictate stories to her and she would write them down. And then in second grade, I had a poem that I wrote published in the PTA newsletter for my elementary school. And I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. You know, I had my byline on it and everything. And in fourth grade, a bunch of us 
fourth and fifth graders at my elementary school decided to launch a school newspaper. Again, yeah, pretty unusual for elementary school kids. And we had a contest to pick the name and my choice won. So wow. it was called the Walt Whitman News and Views. I grew up in a town on Long Island called mm-hmm. Sciatic. Uh, and in junior high, high school, I continued working on the school newspaper and decided then to go get a journalism degree at, at college, where, again, went out for the Daily Northwestern. And I, I joined the Daily Northwestern as a freshman and uh, ended up becoming one of the associate editors in chief. Did you, by any chance, speaking of Northwestern, I only bring yeah. this up because one of my probably the favorite summers of my life was being a cherub at Northwestern right. in the summer of 1977. Did you go to that program or did no, you? I heard, that's how I first heard about Medill was the cherub program. Right. And I wanted to apply, but unfortunately the summer I wanted to apply was the summer that my dad lost his job. Oh. Uh, and so I had to work that summer, mm-hmm. but it, it planted the idea because I didn't even know there was anything called a journalism school. I was expecting to go to college and major in English. And my parents at that time, like I said, were living in on Long Island. So I expected to go to a SUNY school, but then because of my dad's loss of job, they ended up moving the very beginning of my senior year of high school so he could take a new job with the federal government in D.C. And, of course, I was not very happy about leaving the only school system I had known from kindergarten. But sure. it also it eliminated going to SUNY as an educational option for after high school. So suddenly I started thinking about maybe becoming a journalism major because I had heard about that sure. Program. Mm-hmm. I actually went for the theater program, which was sort of my first love and will always be. And it was an incredible time. But we were very close with the folks at Medill that were in the writing program and the radio TV program. And many of us have kept in touch. Some have won Oscars, some have won Emmys. It's been a, been a fascinating experience. Unfortunately, my math SATs had me go to GW, but that worked out really well for me. So no complaints. So as the husband and the father of journalists, my wife, as I was telling you, is at Time, my daughter at People, I'm always interested about your first writing job and how that experience went for you and what you learned from it. I tried for many summers to get an internship on a newspaper, and I was not successful until the summer between my junior and senior year at Northwestern. And at that time, Dow Jones, which was the owner of the Wall Street Journal, decided to open up a newspaper fund internship program that they had long had to encourage men in liberal arts colleges to go into journalism. They opened up their newspaper fund internship program to women and to journalism majors for the first time. And what the newspaper fund internship program was, there were dozens and dozens of newspapers that essentially agreed to take anybody who got chosen by the newspaper fund for an internship for a summer job. And so I and another student at the Medill School, another woman, uh, applied. We were both chosen as newspaper fund interns. And then again, unbeknownst to me, the Wall Street Journal took the cream of the crop of the newspaper fund interns to offer summer internships to at the Wall Street Journal. So I was offered a job in the Washington Bureau. And again, this is, you know, the summer of 1969. There's no such thing as computers. And I get this letter in the mail at, you know, campus from the Wall Street Journal's DC Bureau offering me a summer internship. And I wasn't sure if it was fake. So I remember I called the Bureau Chief Elect <laughs> See if he would accept the charges. And then, you know, I started doing my little journalism grilling. 
okay, so how many other summer interns will there be? And, you know, how many others are women? And, you know, what does this pay? And it all sounded really great because I had already been offered several internships through the newspaper fund program that I had been chosen from, but I was going to have to live out of town. My parents were going to have to, you know, pay for me to have an apartment and I could live at home and the journal was going to pay me more than any of these other newspapers. Plus, I was going to be the only summer intern and I was going to be the first woman that they had as a summer intern. They had one female reporter in that bureau. She had come from the Washington Post where she had worked on the style section, but they had never had a female summer intern. So I took it. Absolutely. What a smart move. And as someone who spent all four years in Washington, D.C., working on internships and applying to everyone and have amazing experiences because of kind of being out there and putting myself out there in a variety of different ways, I can certainly relate to that. It was about 10 years after that, but it was still very much a great city to be able to work on that. So you were in the first wave of Power Moms, really, I guess, pursuing your Wall Street Journal career after you had your two kids. So maybe take us back there a little bit and talk about what it was like being a pregnant woman in the newsroom in the mid-1980s. Well, my first child was actually born in 1979, in August 1979. And earlier that year, when I announced my pregnancy, my bureau chief, I was then working in the Chicago Bureau, his reaction was, oh, I am so sorry. And I was like, well, wait a minute, you don't understand. You know, I plan to return to work after maternity leave. He said, yes, but you also don't understand. A couple of months ago, and this was true, I had gone to him and asked for a transfer to the Washington Bureau because I knew that my husband and I were hoping to become parents. And because my own parents lived in the D.C. area still, where they had moved, as I had mentioned, my senior of high school, I thought it would be really cool you know, if we were able to have a child to have that child be close to his or her grandparents. And so this bureau chief of mine in Chicago had been trying to get me a transfer to the Washington Bureau. And now a couple months into that process, I say, oh, and by the way, I'm expecting a baby in the end of July. And he said, you know, your timing is not great. I said, well, I didn't know how I was going to get pregnant right away. But fast forward, two months later, he comes back to me and he said, are you still willing to move to D.C. You know, while you're pregnant? And I said, sure. It would have to happen pretty soon mm-hmm. because I was getting fairly along in the pregnancy. And so I moved at the beginning of my last trimester. I was, you know, entering my seventh month of pregnancy. And when I landed in the bureau in late April with the baby due in the end of July, the bureau chief looked at me and he said, whoa, I knew you were pregnant, but I didn't know you were that pregnant. <laughs> and my first thought was to say, well, you're either pregnant or not pregnant. But I, yeah. <laughs> I understood. he didn't realize I was so close to a due date. As it turned out that when I announced my pregnancy earlier that year, there were literally a half a dozen other women who also were in the news department, who were reporters, who also announced their pregnancy. And this was unprecedented at least from what I heard on the grapevine. The managing editor, who himself had a stay-at-home wife, said, this is not part of my job description. He couldn't remember any uh, reporters at the journal having announced their pregnancies, much less, you know, so many of them. And very few chose to come back to work after their, their baby arrived. And so as far as I knew, you know, there were very few, if any, other working moms at the, the journal. There certainly weren't any in the Washington Bureau. And so it was a pretty lonely 
you know, role to take on. And plus, the maternity leave policy wasn't so great. The maternity leave policy at that time was 10 weeks, which sounded pretty good to me, but they required you to stay home for four weeks before your due date. And I said to my bureau chief, hello, if my doctor says I'm well, you know, why should I stay home and stare at an empty crib? I'd rather take that time afterwards and combine it with vacation so I could get three months off. And he agreed to do that. When I had a second child, our daughter, about three and a half years later, I proposed at the point when I was going out on maternity leave that I come back on a reduced schedule because I knew it would be really hard to have two kids. I had found it really hard to work full time with just one. And at, at that point, I still had the bureau chief who had been generous with that first maternity leave, but who wasn't super enthusiastic about this reduced schedule. And he simply said, I'll send your memo to the powers that be without essentially weighing in on it one way or another. The managing editor who had been overwhelmed by all those women announcing their pregnancies, again, another guy with a stay-at-home wife, turned it down. And so I returned to work after our daughter was born to working full-time. Fast forward, the managing editor changed, the bureau chief changed. They both ended up being younger guys with, you know, working wives. And in the case of Al Hunt, he's married to Judy Woodruff. They already had a son. And so they got it. And I did then, not that long, you know, after having come back to work, get a four-day schedule. That's incredible. Yeah, you kind of started out with the Don Drapers and then slowly <laughs> you got the Al Hunts. <laughs> And Al Hunt was a fabulous spiritual. I met him a number of times when I worked for Larry King, who's a really, really great guy. So I love how you talk about boomers like both of us that help pay it forward by doing these interviews, writing books, going on record with you, not just in Power Moms, but in your first book too, which is right above you, Earning It, which is a wonderful, wonderful book. And we'll link to that as well. But what have you learned about Gen X and Gen Zers that has either surprised you or hopefully given you some hope? Well, for Power Moms, I interviewed 111 women altogether. 86 of them were women who at some point in their careers had become business executives and who also had children. They were roughly divided between members of my generation, the baby boom generation, and the younger wave, who were overwhelmingly Gen Xers, about two-thirds Gen Xers, and the rest were millennials. So those younger women had to be under the age of 45 at the time of my interview. So they ranged in age from early 30s to early 40s. In addition to those 86 executive mothers, I interviewed 25 adult daughters of the boomer moms who for the most part were in their 20s. And so in a sense, I was stepping back and looking at two and a half generations of working women, most of whom obviously were moms. And I wanted to know how things had gotten better and to what extent were there still challenges when it came to navigating work and life. And what I found was that it is a lot easier for those younger executive moms for three reasons. One is the advances in technology. We wouldn't be all working from home, or many of us, that is, with the white-collar jobs, been able to work from home since the COVID-19 struck if we hadn't had advances in technology. And those technology advances make it possible to not only work virtually, but to work flexibly. 
Secondly, those younger wave of executive moms have much more supportive life partners, spouses, mostly husbands, but in one case, a wife. These were partners who were committed to not only having two careers, but to be highly involved in terms of domestic duties and to rearing children. And then the third change was that the workplace changed. Companies began to recognize that attracting and retaining younger people who have children or were planning to have children was a smart move because in particular, that augured well for women. And frankly, the companies that have more women in management and have more women on their boards do better financially. They have better financial results. And so part of that change in the workplace is that many, many more women have moved into senior management, have become CEOs, and those served as role models, mentors, and sponsors for a lot of those younger women that I interviewed. That's wonderful. So I want to turn the show over for a bit to my colleague, Carrie Shuffman, as she lives and breathes what UBS calls the women's segment and has some really, really interesting, fresh data and a couple of questions for you. Carrie? Well, thanks so much, Mitch. And it's it's great to join you for another uh, Financially Speaking podcast and, and certainly even greater to be a part of this terrific conversation today with Joanne. So Joanne, it's, it's great to be here with you. As Mitch mentioned, I'm actually the head of what's called our women's segment at UBS really focused on the development and implementation of our strategy to help address the unique financial needs that women have. And and in this capacity, as Mitch mentioned, my team and I have had the opportunity to do extensive research with thousands and thousands of women here in the U.S. and around the world, all around the topic of women's financial well-being. And Joanne, I I saw you recently uh, did an interview on Bloomberg back in March where you discussed the tremendous disproportionate impact that COVID and the pandemic has had on women. UBS, we've actually also done our own research on this subject and found that the majority of women, unsurprisingly, told us that they'd taken on more of the household and childcare responsibilities, whereas interestingly, men told us that they'd taken on more of the financial responsibilities over the last year during the COVID-19 pandemic. And six out of 10 women actually also told us that they felt that the pandemic was negatively impacting their career for a variety of reasons, including, you know, having to reduce hours or, you know, have a reduction in salary, having to put promotions or raises on hold, having to step out of the workforce, or even things like delaying retirement plans, which I know is something that you also have have spoken extensively about and, and looked at as well. So can you share more from your own perspective about what you've been seeing and hearing around the last year and, and the pandemic's impact on women? I have done extensive research that very cogently summarizes what that huge economic impact has been. And to the point you were just making, I think the impact has been even greater on working moms than it has been on women in general. And it's why I think we are incorrect in describing the economic downturn that has grown out of COVID-19 as a she session. Instead, we should be characterizing it as a mom session. In fact, just very recently, the Wall Street Journal did an analysis of census data to look at what that impact has been on working mothers. And they found that there were nearly 1.5 million fewer moms in the workforce than before COVID-19. And that mothers with school-aged children were having an especially a hard time returning to jobs to a much greater degree than fathers. 
But I also think that the savvy employers out there in the U.S. are very, very aware of what impact the pandemic is having on the sharing or lack of sharing of childcare and domestic duties. And they're trying to pay attention to that in terms of how they serve the needs of working parents and in particular working moms. There's a final chapter in my new book called Making Work Workable for Parents that focuses on a handful of companies that were already pay setters in terms of serving the needs of working parents before the pandemic struck. And some of those have also stepped up to the plate since then. One of them, for instance, is PwC, which among other things has increased their benefit for backup childcare. They've also given people the chance to take a leave of absence and still make a portion of their pay. And in addition, they have offered individuals, particularly those who are trying to educate their kids from home, the opportunity to set aside protected hours every day in which they are essentially unreachable by work. And I think we need to see more companies take on this responsibility of making sure that it is not a burden that is unfairly and unduly falling on the shoulders of working moms. And so, you know, I know it can be hard to find an optimistic thread in this crisis of the last year, but if we were to try to find some silver lining, you know, that may come out of the pandemic, is there any good news? And if so, you know, what is? So, for example, the same research that that UBS did on the pandemic did show that women who are able to work remotely feel that they're much more productive working from home and that they have better flexibility when being able to work remotely. And, and a large majority of women, and in particular millennial women, told us that they hope to be able to work remotely more often, even after the COVID-19 pandemic has subsided. So do you think that things will change in the long term as the situation with, with COVID-19 improves? And, and how can we address and put into practice you know, the lessons that we've learned during COVID? I know you just gave that terrific example of what PwC is doing and what companies are doing, but how do you see a fundamental shift happening in the long term? I like to say, you know, it's not a question of going back to normal because with what normal was, 30 years of women's labor force participation was wiped out in the course of a year. So I like to say, you know, what is the next or the new normal? And I'd love to pose that same question to you. I think you answered your own question. I think the new normal is going to be a continued and widening acceptance of work from home as not only being an acceptable arrangement, but one in which you can advance your career. And so there have been a number of surveys that have come out in recent months suggesting that many major employers plan to have essentially hybrid workplaces in which some people will choose to work in the office, some will choose to work from home, some will choose to work from home all the time, some will choose to work from home part of the time and come into a physical workplace part of the time. I don't think we're going to go back to the old way of doing business. But more importantly, I also think, and it's been evident to me from the reporting I did for Power Moms, that younger women are confident enough about not only their abilities and their achievements, but by the fact that the workplace is changing and more accepting of women in high-level management, that they can vote with their feet. And so can working dads. If you're in a workplace where your needs are not being met, those of your family or your personal life, as well as your professional needs, you can go elsewhere. You don't have to work there. 
You know, I love the expression. I spoke to Mark Schaefer last week, who's, a, as you know, a wonderful writer. He's written 11 books on marketing from known to marketing influencers to a new book called Cumulative Vantage. But he refers to it not as going back to work, but we're going forward to work, which I thought was really an interesting way of putting it. And I know, speaking of terms, you really reject the term work-life balance. I wanted you to kind of talk about that a little bit. Right. So this notion of work-life balance is one that I addressed in my first book as an impossible ideal. So in Earning It, Hard-Won Lessons from Trailblazing Women at the Top of the Business World, I was able to devote one chapter to the concept of working motherhood. And the title of that chapter came from one of those 52 women I interviewed for the book. And the chapter was called Manager Moms Are Not Acrobats, because there is no such thing as work-life balance. But it wasn't until I started reporting power moms and began meeting some of these younger executive moms that I was introduced to the alternative concept of work-life sway. And the notion of work-life sway is that when we need to be 110% present for our jobs, for our work, we are. And yet when life intrudes, when the washing machine overflows, where the two-year-old dumps the contents of her diaper on your lap in the middle of your PowerPoint presentation, you just get out of work and you move into life and you don't give yourself a hard time about it. I became so enamored of this idea of work-life sway that when I turned in the manuscript a year ago, it was the subtitle. The book was going to be called Power Moms, Secrets of Work-Life Sway from Two Generations of Executive Women. Unfortunately, my publisher thought that was a great idea, but one that no one would have any idea what the book was about. And so the subtitle that you see was her idea. And Joanne, I'd love to pivot, you know, in addition to the research that we've done on on women in COVID, we've also done a lot of research, as I mentioned before, on women in financial decision-making. And interestingly enough, our research over the last few years has found that despite the tremendous advances that women are making in the workplace, in their communities, in politics, that many women at home behind closed doors do tend to fall into more traditional gender norm roles. And in fact, that about half of women in couples defer the major long-term financial decisions to their spouse or partner. Have you noticed this to be the case in in your travels and interviews and experiences? And have you seen sort of a, a financial confidence gap among women? And if so, how do you think we as a society can can overcome that? Well, I've certainly seen a lot of data that would support your research. Um, it was not a topic that I focused on in reporting the book. On the other hand, there were a number of women I interviewed for Power Moms whose husbands chose to become stay-at-home dads, mostly because her career was either taking off faster than his, or she had greater long-term potential because of the profession he had chosen. And I definitely think in those couples, in those families, she had a much bigger involvement and a bigger role in the financial decisions because, frankly, she was the primary breadwinner. But I think in terms of why this becomes a persistent issue in the research that you've done and other studies, it goes back to this rather more prevalent problem of unconscious bias and the fact that we all have sex role stereotypes and gender role expectations in which we see the guy as being the one who worries about the money and mows the grass and 
fixes the car and ends up doing a lot of the traditional tasks that our fathers and grandfathers did without thinking about the fact that this is perpetuating sex role stereotyping and frankly, putting both men and women in boxes that are not necessarily the ones that they want to occupy. And that's why I really think it's very important as part of choosing your life partner when you're having those early discussions about making a long-term commitment to each other to not only talk about you know, how you feel about managing two careers or how you feel about raising children jointly, but to talk about how do you feel about financial planning decisions and who makes those decisions and how you can jointly share that decision-making and it is a topic like all those topics that has to be revisited regularly throughout your lives together. It can't be a one-shot deal. Oh, absolutely. And I, I'm so glad you brought up unconscious bias. Recently, I had the CEO of AT&T Business who wrote a book called Unconscious Bias. And we, we took a really deep dive about all these good people with good intentions, making decisions based on fact. But as was pointed out in her book, there, there's more at play than we realize. And I think you made a very, very strong point in saying that. Carrie, was there anything else you wanted to add there? No, I, I couldn't agree more with everything that you just said, Joanne. And in fact, our latest uh, brand new Own Your Worth report specifically explores this specific topic around how women and men approach financial decision-making together, how we can overcome the gender imbalance that exists around some of these topics, and how, in particular, women and men in couples can work together to achieve greater financial well-being, and how we can not only uh, help men think about this topic differently, because this is certainly not just a women's issue, but also how we can encourage more women to pull up a chair to the money table. So I, I think it's really fascinating that you just mentioned the importance of, of partnerships. And, and that can be, you know, not just a marital partnership, right? It's, it's critical that you choose the right partners in business, that you have the right, you know, conversations that are sometimes tough conversations with other family members and loved ones about financial matters or, or otherwise. So I really, I think everything that you just said very much aligns with, with all the work that, that we're doing on this topic all around Own Your Worth and women's financial well-being. I couldn't agree more, but I also would like to put in a vote in favor of a marriage contract because my husband and I have had one for decades. That's a smart thing. You know, all of this is so important but none of it happens, and I'm going to get on a soapbox for a minute about something that just really bothers me, which has to do with general financial education and how we're still 14th in the world in financial literacy. And, you know, day in, day out, as someone who manages, you know, a number of companies' plans, 401k plans, and meet with a lot of Gen Z and millennials, I see it more and more. I don't even see a change. You know, I still see the Donna Reed generation. I still see with these kids you know, that their moms, not that they were vacuuming with pearls back in the 50s, but that it was easier to talk about sex than it was to talk about money in their household. You know, young people tell me that recently. It's just something that as kind of put on your journal writer hat and opinion writer, is there hope there? I mean, I just feel it just keeps being thrown on the back burner. And yes, some that are highly educated and some that, you know, have had this financial exposure, but it's not in high school. It is mandated in New Jersey now. I was actually part of a group of people that got that done under Governor Corzine when I was on the Board of Education, but it's not in many states. And I don't know, it's just something I just throw an audible in and ask you about. Well, I think that is the answer. I think financial literacy education ought to be mandatory in the high school level nationwide, not just in New Jersey. 
only needs to be taught at the high school level. Yeah, without a doubt. So before we wrap up, I know despite focusing on power moms and daughters, you have some opinions about raising sons. And I think our audience probably have a few sons out there. I do, who actually works at UBS. And I don't know, whatever we did, it's working. So I don't know how. I I credit my wife mostly as a journalist. So, But I think our audience would love to hear some of your thoughts. Well, I am highly committed to the notion that we're never going to change in terms of our gender stereotypes, unless we raise feminist children and we have to raise feminist sons as well as feminist daughters. And I'm very proud of having raised one of each. And in the case of my son, he has three children of his own. When his eldest was born, she's turning 10 in about a month, paternity leave was not an option. When his son was born, his son will turn eight this summer, paternity leave was an option where he worked, a government agency in Minnesota, but no guys in his office had ever taken it. And so Dan was very reluctant to take this multi-month paid paternity leave. But his wife strongly wanted him to do so because she had recently joined a company where you got no paid maternity leave if you got pregnant in the first year and their son was born 11 months after she joined the company. So she was able to take a month's vacation and then they threw in one month of maternity leave and though she hadn't earned it, but she didn't really wanna go back to work after two months. So she kind of shanghaied Dan into doing that. And he did. And I think thoroughly enjoyed it, but felt fully racked by guilt over the fact he was missing work and dialed into the weekly staff call even while he had this newborn on his lap. Well, fast forward to the third child who is turning three tomorrow, actually. And now he not only took his now called parental leave, but he took it with great relish. And when he returned to work, he was now in a pretty senior managerial position where he had to deal with issues involving new working parents. And he brought a great breadth of experience as having now been a new dad, not only three times, but having taken paid leave twice, it gave him a much better appreciation of these issues that the people who work for him were dealing with as new parents. That's wonderful. And more and more companies, certainly we are seeing that. I certainly wish it existed when my kids were born 28 and 24 years ago, just wasn't even an option. So it's a real positive thing. And it's really interesting how your son has progressed with three kids. And by the third kid, things are clicking. That seemed to make sense. So as become tradition on this show, I'd love to ask you kind of a final question, which I call the Tim Ferriss question because it's his question, but I love it so much. I borrowed it. He calls it the billboard question. So you are granted a giant billboard, Joanne, for all the world to see. What would it say and why? What it would say is pay it forward. I love it. I love it. Why? Why? I love that. Because the women who chose to speak to me on the record for earning it, and very, very frankly, an insane turn for power moms, lots of people have asked me, why would these women have chosen to open up so honestly and so frankly and at such great depth and on some very emotionally difficult topics? And I said, it gets back to the fact that each generation has the moral obligation to pay it forward and help those who come after us. It's our our legacy and it's our obligation, it seems to me, as human beings. It's beautiful. Carrie, any last words, anything you wanted to add before we wrap up? No, I love 
pay it forward. Uh, Joanne, it was so great to be a part of today's podcast and to uh, to hear all of your insights uh, that you have to share. I think everyone has a ton to learn from you, but also from the wisdom that you've gleaned from so many women through all of your work. So so thank you for sharing that with us today. And of course, Mitch, thanks for letting me be a part of the uh, conversation. Of course. And as a reminder, the book is called Power Moms, How Executive Mothers Navigate Work and Life is the actual title, although Joanne gave a really great one earlier, but that's the title you'll see on the book. It is published by Harper, and we will link to her book, uh, to both of her books, actually a couple of articles that I've loved over the years I might throw in there. And I'd to some you of the- to link to my website too. Absolutely. JoanneLidland.com. Anyone who buys a hardback version of the book, I would be happy to send them a personalized autographed book plate. Just email me your mailing address, and that offer applies to the two of you, too. So my well, email address thank is you. name, Joanne Lublin at gmail.com. Very generous of you, and our listeners appreciate it, and I appreciate it. I do have the book, but I would love to have one signed. That was one of my great pleasures in working for Larry King of all the signed books I got over the years. But really, really, I appreciate you spending time with us, and the book is really exciting, and we look forward to to more of your regular contributions to the journal because there's plenty to keep writing about. Are you working on anything right now? Well, I'm mostly doing profiles for a feature called Personal Board of Directors and trying to do a lot of profiles of women and people of color of both genders. And ironically, since I started focusing my attention on that part of the journal, I've actually done profiles of three of the 86 women in the book. Oh, wow. That's terrific. That's exciting. That's exciting. Well, we will definitely link to your website and give everyone a chance to see that. So thank you again, Joanne, for sharing your wisdom with us today. And thank you again to my colleague and head of the women's segment at UBS, Carrie Shuffman, for co-hosting and providing me personally with some very helpful input for today's show. And thank you to the folks at Resonate Recording for all the production work. And remember, folks, when saving for your financial future... Pay yourself first. Have a great week. 